This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome, I'm Jake Cantor. Coming down the Talking TV slipway this week, BBC drama boss Polly Hill's shock move to ITV, plus the inside track on NBC's smash hit Little Big Shots. Also on the programme, we ponder the prospects for a couple of new BBC Three shows, including Witless, a comedy from the producer behind Peep Show. And sandwiched between that lot, the bosses of Love Productions and The Garden share their secrets on running a successful indie. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. Uh, so in the studio this week, broadcast editor Chris Curtis and our very own Stephen D. Wright. You're just back from Cannes, Chris. Back from Cannes, still in recovery mode. I reckon it'll take me about a month or so to get back on an easy Was it a taxing few days then? Uh, it was just very busy, very good fun, uh, lots of old faces. Um, I think I had a glass of rosé out there. Yes, I did have one, yes. And was it a busy market or you know, give, us a, give us a sense of... What so it was like a lot of people were grumbling a little bit, saying, oh, it's quiet, it's quiet. And you know what? MIP TV is a bit quiet sometimes, but it's what you make it. I had lots of good meetings. Lots of other people told me they had lots of good meetings. You go there, you um, do what you need to do. Um, yeah, I'm always a, a MIP fan. I enjoy it. It's good fun. What's the big talking point? From a programming point of view, the jail 60 days yes. in. So tell us about this, because this sounds fascinating. Yeah. Sexy. So <laughs> this, is, this is sexy and edgy. And so in the States, on A&E, there is this massive breakout hit. I must admit I hadn't heard of it until I went to MEP and chatted to a few people, and they told me I needed to find out about it. Journalism, I think they call that. Mm. Um, and essentially, it's uh, a sort of reality format, but in an American jail, as distinct from a prison. So it's not completely... Uh, they're not, they're not murders. High, high security murders. But it's where they hold people, I think, on uh, before trial or sort of right, on the bar. Okay kind of thing so it's not cells I think it's more sort of open plan it's still a pretty intimidating mm. environment seven innocent people undercover um, not even the prison guards know that they're taking part in this and they get sent in and massively controversial massively edgy lots of Brits have got their knickers in a twist thinking they quite might like to try and do something over here and you said mm. in your leader column this week that uh, someone's developing it well so there's a, not, a British Indian I don't know who sadly uh, has optioned it and is sort of trying to look into the feasibility. I think it's harder to get the British Home Office mm. to agree to this kind of format than it is to get some sheriff in a, in a federal America mm. where essentially the, the elected official of the town mm. can do what he pleases. Mm. Well, watch this space, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, time for something a bit different. We'll move from factual to, to scripted. First on the agenda this week, uh, broadcast revealed this week that uh, BBC drama controller Polly Hill is on the verge of a surprise move to ITV. The commissioner of shows, including Poldark and the night manager, is in line to replace Steve November as part of a big money deal. Uh, Hill's departure is a blow for the BBC, which has protected drama from cuts and made the genre a priority as part of charter renewal. It also says a lot about the ambitions of ITV's director of television, Kevin Ligo, who is finalising his top team after taking over from Peter Fincham in February. So, as we record, nothing's been confirmed yet. Mm-hmm. So we have to sort of caveat anything we say with that. But <laughs> we were all a little bit taken aback by Polly's um, news this week. Were it's you? Sh- definitely <laughs> shocking. It's definitely <laughs> shocking. I think only because of the fact she's only been in the job for a mm-hmm. year since Ben Stevenson went off to JJ in LA. Not even a year. I mean, it's... Well, just, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's... A few months I think shy of that. That's what everyone's shocked at. People move jobs all the time. Yeah. If she'd have been in the job for five years, no one would even be talking about it. I think the big story really isn't the fact she's going to leave the BBC for a massive paycheck. It's the fact that ITV are going to take drama seriously. Yeah. You know, ITV's mainstay for years was drama and entertainment. And then sort of drama sort of faded a little bit and became about Saturday Night Entertainment. But dramas on ITV used to be 
massively successful, probably more so than the BBC. But of course, everybody wants to do drama now. Drama mm-hmm. is the big thing. So it's an obvious hire for Kevin, very clever hire if he gets her. So I can imagine the BBC are shitting themselves at the moment. <laughs> That's a technical term, that's everyone. The, that's the, that's the, that's know, a technical term. That's the phrase term. that Director General Tony Hall is using. Yes, I am shitting, shitting myself. <laughs> what is going on with drama? I mean, it's it's great for news for her, but obviously it's that problem that always happens when you go from the BBC to ITV. You know, will your standards suddenly drop? Do the, do the, the you know, are the requirements different to the job? You know, will ITV do a period drama in the way that, uh, you know, Cranford was a hit on BBC One, for example? You know, these things suddenly change. I mean, ITV drama can be very, very formulaic. You know, it's very uh, it's very sort of uh, Christopher Eccleston, you know, detective this, bit broody, you know, constant, or Marcella that was just gone out last week. It, you know, you get a little bit like, oh, you know, detective fatigue. Everyone's played a middle-aged detective or divorcee detective or a detective that's... That troubled into, past. You know, troubled past, exactly. And it's like, you know, if they can bring in... Uh, or if she can bring in some, you know, some pole dark type nonsense stuff that we actually want to see. You know, drama dr- drama can be escapist and fun, not just grim and brutal. Mm. I mean, it does open up a bit of a leadership vacuum around drama at the BBC. I'm, I'm struggling to think who might take over there. Yeah, I mean, I was chatting to a few people at, at, at Cannes about whether there were um, obvious internal candidates. She was the obvious internal candidate, I think, when uh, when Ben Absolutely, left. Absolutely, yeah. I think Stephen's right. Part of the reason that people were, were shocked, and I spoke to some BBC people in Cairns, some ex-BBC people, and they were, they were sort of taken aback. Part of the reason is, you know, Jane Tranter did that job for goodness knows how many years. Ben Stevenson did it for goodness knows how many years. There was there, there always traditionally sort of has been a perception that director of drama commissioning at the BBC it kind of doesn't get much better than that if you, if that's the field that you that you work in. That's the dream job mm. where you haven't got quite the same kind of commercial pressures Polly will inherit when she goes to mm. ITV. I suspect that the money, as Stephen sort of uh, hinted at, the amount that ITV spends on drama in their annual budget proportionally mm. is going to be rocketing up. Mm. I mean, I, you know, someone said to me, oh, well, um, wouldn't you go to a job if you're going to get a 50% budget increase? Mm. Now, that wasn't them saying yeah. that's but what's happening, but that was the it's feeling. Something that, like that. Exactly that, yeah. exactly that, that there will be, she's going to have a bigger, better uh, toy set to play yeah. with. And I mean, if she's uh, given creative freedom, and that, that is Kevin Ligo's basic mm-hmm. charm, you know, Kevin is a risk taker. Kevin has got the programming community, you know, they, they worship him because he does take risk. He, he is an artistic creative uh, as opposed to the, you know, a numbers man. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you could imagine the spiel that he gave to Polly yeah. come, we're going to increase your wages, we're going to double your, your programming budget, and we'll allow you to take risks. God, anybody would have gone for that. You know, I mean, it's exciting for us as viewers, mm-hmm. you know, and, and yeah, and it opens up the BBC to somebody else can have a go. I mean, it's, Does it also yeah. point to a bit of unrest at the BBC? I mean, obviously, we've got uh, that sort analysis, of that sentiment yeah. on our front page. Yeah. Uh, there's a bit of concern about the, the future of the BBC and the, and the prospect of job cuts to come. Well, what no one likes is limbo and uncertainty, do they? Uh, and it's true across, to be honest, it's true across all industries, but, you know, um, indies don't like it when they're not sure what's going on at channels because, you know, if there's a commissioning hiatus or they're not sure who's holding the power. I think in the, uh, the, within the BBC at the moment, what you know is there's a train coming down the tracks and you can just about see the headlights in the, in, in the distance in the form of where's the cuts going to come from, what's going to happen with studios, what, what, are, what are the processes, um, the potentially quite painful processes mm. that are going to be required to, to create BBC studios. And I kind of feel a bit like 
they probably want to bite the bullet and get on with it. I mean, it's not dissimilar <laughs> to how Channel 4 is feeling about its, it, about its future. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a mm. point where you say, well, come on, let's just find out what the, what the pain is and, and begin to try they're and chomp, They're it. chomping at the bit to, to, to make Forget. that happen. I mean, that, yeah. that's the sense. I mean, they're all waiting for the white yeah. paper and there is definite frustration that it hasn't arrived yet. So, Well, I mean, the, yeah. the thing is, obviously, is Polly the only person that's going to leave from the BBC to go to ITV? That's the bigger question. Here's my bet. No. <laughs> <laughs> you, heard it, you heard it here first, folks. I think there'll be others. And just quickly, finally on ITV, um, another little piece of the jigsaw that we've sort of heard this week might be Shu Green, the director of entertainment at ITV Studios, perhaps moving upstairs and joining Kevin in commissioning. That was the name doing, that's the name yeah. doing the rounds. I mean, look, the, the, people love to speculate, don't they? And part of broadcast job is to try and sift through um, names being banded around uh, and try and turn that into something um, something real. Uh, you know, the, the, Sue Murphy for Fact Dent has kind of been the name on everyone's lips from the moment Kevin appeared. That, again, hasn't been confirmed yet, so um, who knows whether that will be the outcome. The interesting thing about Shoe Green of course is a very strong relationship with Cal mm. given that there are some interesting psycho negotiations coming up that wouldn't be a um, uh, uh, apparently Cal bought her a very nice car when she left psycho that's really? well as someone, as someone said in broadcast this week it does uh, offer up the delicious prospect of Shoe Green telling Simon Cal what he can't have <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's stick with ITV and entertainment uh, the commercial broadcaster moved swiftly this week to snap up NBC's little big shots after the Warner Brothers format became one of the biggest American entertainment launches in many years. Uh, the show will be made in the UK by Warner-owned Walter Wall, and it has a simple premise. Children showcase a hidden talent and are interviewed about their performance. Uh, Chris, you interviewed Mike Darnell, Warner, did, yeah. Warner Boss, which yeah. was uh, a, a good thing for us to have in our magazine. Well, and also I only had to go to France to do it rather than going to the States. <laughs> so that, that, was, that, was, that was nice. Um, so the interesting thing about this show is it's a comedy show, really, masquerading as an entertainment show. And the, the way it works in the States is Steve Harvey, the host, hams it up with these cute little kids. Yeah. Everyone chuckles along. And Mike Darnell said to me, by the time the kid do, does their skill, you're so in love with the kid. You're, you're so enamoured with this cute child. They could kind of do anything and you'd be impressed. So there are, they have amazing kids doing amazing things. There's a wow, there is a wow factor to the talent. There's no competition. There's no judges. Yeah. Basically, they get him on. Steve Harvey hams it up. He sort of plays the fool a little bit. There's lots of sort of double takes and funny looks. It's a simple premise, and I think it's that. I mean, the other interesting thing Mike Donald said to me, he said, My reputation isn't to make kind hearted programming. My, you know, his reputation is to make that sort of um, uh, Gordon Ramsay, everyone screams at everyone else, uh, American uh, reality. He says, I'll do what it, it, the warmth of this show is, is a little bit different. Have you seen any clips online, Steve? I've seen a few. I mean, the thing is, it's it's such an obvious no-brainer for ITV. Surely this has been pitched a million that, times. That's my problem is, <laughs> yeah. I think I've seen it a million times. It's like, kids say the funniest things, <laughs> big star, little star, whatever it is. Mm. How many have we seen like this? And But they always work. Cute kids say funny things, fall over, ha-ha, everyone cries. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, with laughter. People are shocked in the States at how big, the industry people are shocked at how big a hit this has been. Well, I think it's because people have got so dependent on reality TV, mm. on talent shows, they've forgotten all the classics of entertainment work. And all they need to do is bring back one, which is what this is, essentially. It's a remake of, of something from 20 years ago. And lo and behold, it works again. You know, these are the same shows and they always work again. You know, am I being too cynical? No, can I you like tell it. I, can you tell I have no children? <laughs> can you tell I'm not a mum? So why does ITV need to buy in an expensive American format? 
well, well, to achieve this. Well, that's what they're supposed to be doing, aren't they? They haven't. I mean, why they haven't developed it themselves is the question you should really be asking. You know, ITV are there to. That's what. If you've got money in this formats coming along, you have to buy them. You know, why they bought the Voice is a is a more kind of problematic question. They should be spending money on things like this that isn't the Voice. You know, it should be always about extending the genre, not narrowing the focus. You know. So, um, but as I say, if this does well, we'll see several kid-related shows within the next six months. And it's your impression, Chris, that Kevin moved pretty quickly on this. I think, well, I think he had to. I mean, it's, it hasn't been on air that many weeks. So, yeah, they, they moved pretty quickly. And also, it kind of must have been Kevin personally to do a deal of that magnitude. And, and mm. given the changes that we're talking about in the commissioning team, he's obviously gone. And, and that's another thing that people associate with Mr. Ligo is pretty quick, decisive mm. uh, action. Well, when, you know, when he went to Five, when he first started as a, as a controller... He bought Neighbours, or Home and Away, sorry, and changed the, the, the demographic of Channel 5 instantly. People couldn't understand why he did it. He's, he's clever in that respect, very clever in, in his sort of acquisitions and, and scheduling strategy. He's Much been described as a brilliant oh-fuck-it commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would say so. Kevin Ligo is a genius and will change ITV. Hopefully, within six to nine months, we'll start seeing it. I think we're seeing it already. Well, well there you go. But, you know, this is all good news for the viewer. It really is. Good. Okay. finally, our commissioner of the fortnight, Talking TV's dubious honour, goes to the job interview, a new Channel 4 format that will use fixed rig cameras to spy on real life recruitment interviews. The five part series is the first commission for former Dragonfly boss Simon Dixon's new ITV Studios indie label one. Thoughts, gents? Would you like to have your interviews recorded and shown on Channel 4? I wouldn't like to have my interview recorded, but I would like to watch the programme. I mean, that's the thing. I I would hate to be a participant, but I think it sounds fascinating. And it's, again, very simple, uh, very, very uh, psychologically sort of uh, interesting. To me, there's a little bit of real jeopardy, real drama, because the thing about, you know, I interview people for jobs all the time, and people say the stupidest thing within Mm. the first two minutes. And, you know, quite often you have to say to them, you've just sort of talked talk yourself out of a job. Or did you not prepare? Or did, have you not... That thing of... So it will be incredibly interesting to see that happening on a, on a sort of bigger scale. Because that's what, what's going to make good TV. Either stupidity or arrogance or pride. And, and, and that thing, you know, puncturing the, the kind of the process. Um, and then, you know, my, my favourite episode, for example, of The Apprentice is always the job interview <laughs> that they yeah. do at sort of week That's 19 true. or something. And, you know, that way that they... they the inter- so I don't know if the interviewers are going to tell the, the subjects what they did wrong. I mean, that would be great if they did. I mean, hopefully they won't just sort of say, oh, yeah, we'll let you know. There'll, there'll be feedback, but, Well, I mean, but that, because, that, you know, that, that's, that would, to me, that would justify the pain of, of appearing on it. If you go on and start boasting and someone says here, you know, but this isn't what your CV says or something and immediately undercuts them. You, you've got a great TV, but you've also got a potential public service kind of element to uh, justify it, you know? So we think that Claude Littner is going to bowl up and uh, fire some questions. I mean, it'll be interesting tonally to see how they do it, whether they sort of play it, whether it's, I would suspect there's bits that'll be played for laughs and bits that'll be serious and bits that, there's a quite, there's a really nice show on BBC Two at the moment called Employable Me, yes. which is, I mean, yeah. obviously sort of different, but not yeah. dissimilar. That's different why I but me- mentioned Because yeah, exactly. actually, again, there where people have got autism or Tourette's mm. or whatever um, their condition is and you, you, you show that through the prism of a what is a stressful uh, occasion for anyone mm. right to go and, and, and sort of convince someone to uh, give I mean you, that's give super warm that is a very warm you know loving show you want these people to get through whether we'll whether the scropes that turn up on this <laughs> because obviously they're going to have to 
cast it so that you don't just go, oh, please get the job. You're going to have to hate people and, and, you know, and boo and hiss because that's what makes great TV. And they're recruiting, they're creating this whole hub, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, because that's what's so interesting is like, you know, to actually cast this is, is a producer's nightmare. You know, how do you find an interesting yet flawed, yet funny, yet arrogant, you know, candidate who, by the way, if he gets it wrong, doesn't get a job? You know what I mean? It's like there's, 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 you know, you're you're really playing God with people's lives. So you know, one part of me, I sort of, ooh, you know, so, ooh, you know, grumble in my sort of Daily Telegraph kind of, you know, letter writer opinion way, and the other half of me goes, you know, bring it on. Yeah. So that's kind of rubbing I my see hands it. together with glee. They're one to look forward to. Uh, that's your dose of industry news. Thanks to Chris and Stephen. Up next, how do you launch and grow a successful production company? With a bumper crop of startups bustling their way into the market, this is the question we asked two of the brightest minds in the business at Broadcast Indie Summit last month. Here, The Garden's Nick Kerwin and Love's Richard McKerrow reveal how they made their breakthrough and why you should never stop pitching good ideas. Asking the questions is Laura Mansfield, PAC Chair, Outline Managing Director and Talking TV regular. And she starts by asking the guys how they got their businesses motoring. Here's Nick. Well, with The Garden, it was 24 hours in A&E. Um, I mean, and it was very close to when we started. We, we, we actually <laughs> talked about identity and being clear what you're doing from the beginning. Actually, I'm, I'm lying through my teeth because when we, when we started, we, we had a nice little launch party. We said exactly what we are going to do. And our idea was genuinely to be a sort of really very, very minuscule um, boutique little company. And we were going to sort of have a nice time and do a couple of shows and everything. And then within that six months or something, Channel 4 asked for 14, a 14 part, 24 hours in A&E, commissioned off one and a half sides of A4. You know, we had to decide to whether to kind of stick with our plan or get serious. And um, you, know, you, can't, you can't make that show unless you're a serious production company. So nobody in their right mind would turn down that commission. So we, we decided to, 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 to do it properly. Richard, how about at Love? You know, you've got, you know, a... <coughs> blockbuster of a show with uh, with Bake Off but it wasn't always thus what was the what was the breakthrough well I mean it's interesting isn't it because it's uh, listening to Nick the best laid plans you just don't you know it's like it's like making a factual program you don't know what's going to happen and you need to be prepared to change to the but funny enough we started um, there were just five of us we had about ten thousand pounds we had I think we had three commissions two didn't happen and the first year it was all about trying to get that first series you know, making, getting one-offs and making them as good as possible. But, and I remember thinking, because I'd been at Maverick before and delivered series, and Anna had been at RDF and delivered series, having left Channel 4. So we thought, but, you know, I mean, I remember Liz Warner, when she first set up Betty, the first year she didn't get a series. So you have to be prepared for that. And then what ha- I suppose the big breakthrough moment for us was um, in the year two, just at the beginning, we, we landed two very big series, um, one was the Baby Borrowers, where we were creatively out of our comfort zone, um, but it was an enormous commission. It was like a two million pound doc reality. We thought it was a reality show, but you know. And then the second, which you know, it was Cirque de Celebrity for Sky One as a factual documentary company, and really that was just again you couldn't have seen that coming. It was the fact that the then controller at Sky didn't want to work with the big indies. 
um, wanted a small indie that he could beat up and he could run the show from the gallery. Um, sorry, with all respect to Richard Wolfe. Um, you know, and, and of course, that was, a, that, was, that was a great thing for us because it gave us an opportunity to play in an area we haven't dreamt of. And to a certain extent, that became very important for us. And I think, because I think what happens is you get stereotypes as a production company. You, you become the company that's very good at social experiment television or, you know, whatever it is. And I feel that as a factual producer, the only way we're going to make brilliant new shows is when you get out of your own genre, so-called genre. And there's no reason why we can't hire people who are from these various different genres and have experience and work with different people and then we'll make big, better new shows for, for British television. You know, at the end of the day, I passionately believe television will be hard. Whatever you do, whether it's a gardening show, whatever it is, you're working with a bunch of unqualified, artistic, narcissistic, <laughs> creative people who are going to drive you completely nuts. So I'm going to drive them nuts. Well, that's just the gardener. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and therefore it's going to be hard. So why on earth would you work on something that isn't going to get pick of the day, uh, isn't, people aren't going to talk about, and that you're not going to be incredibly proud of. You know? uh, so I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, for us, quality control is everything. You know, and I also think that you are the producer, and although you've managed to persuade this broadcaster to give you a load of money, it's now your responsibility to make the programme damn good, or why should they work with you again? So if that means when you go into an edit, you see that it's not working, rather than going, you need to give me more money, broadcaster, you have to roll your sleeves up, and get in there and make it really brilliant. And I think broadcasters appreciate that kind of level of care and attention, and then they will, you know, want to, you know, talk to you again about the next ideas. Nick, you talked earlier on about, you know, the people in your company. You know, you all run, you know, very different companies with different cultures, but I'd like to understand a bit more about that. Um, I mean, can you create a culture, or does it evolve? I suspect you can evolve a culture, but I think it's very important to stand for something straight away uh, I think and also I think that the culture comes from the, the people who founded it or running it being very explicit uh, constantly in everything they do about their values and that then pervades everything and and, th and then the people you gather around you are often the people you, you want to have around you not just the people who are the best people you can get but the people you like working with you know we, we spend a lot of time together uh, and so there's a kind of a common culture comes out of that because they share those values and then and they they, they kind of um, that pervades everything they do and but I think they, being very clear about that right from the get go and that's in not just in the kind of grandiose ways when you're talking about what sort of programs you want to make and talk 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 but in in in, in everything I mean right from when we started Firefly a long time ago we were involved in like how do expenses get paid you know are we going to ask people to go through their mobile phone bills and say which one was work call and which one was all or you know how are we are we going to pay promptly and how are we going to deal with business affairs when we do the chat all that everything absolutely everything needs to be an expression of those values and the culture I think comes from that you know we're not perfect all the time but when when I find out that something hasn't been quite right I get really upset about it <laughs> so what is your culture would you say and and can you give us a practical example of demonstrable action that, that shows in a, that. In a, in a way, Richard sort of hinted at it there when he was pointing out, you know, how, how to deal with contributors on 24 hours in A and E. You know, he's dealing with people who've been knocked off their perch um, very suddenly and, and arrive in a in a in a bad way quite often. And you know, how how to deal with everybody in a in a proper and 
decent way where you remember that you're dealing with people. You know, this is not a television set when we're making 24 hours and it's a hospital. And we say it over and over and over again. We're secondary. <coughs> everything about the programme is secondary. And I think that's true of of everything. I mean, we try to remember, even if we are dealing with business affairs at a channel, that we try to remember we're dealing with people and, um, and, to, be, uh, and to be good about things and to be decent about things. And of course, in our own company as well. I think that sort of humanity and, and, and decency is important. And I, I think it also gets into the tone of our shows. Uh, I think we, 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 we don't do any shows that feel kind of cynical and mean. Uh, I'm not knocking them because there's some really good ones out there, but it's just not us. And, um, we, and, and I think that our team have a sense of, have a really strong sense of that. Uh, they, they know what feels like the kind of thing we would do and it's the kind of thing they want to make. Richard? I sort of think of us as a bit of a dysfunctional family. <laughs> um, and that, but I think the family thing's really important. Uh, I think that it's sort of, we're kind of a bit like a, I think they once said about Air Uzbekistan, a load of spare parts flying in close formation. I feel sometimes like that, we're a load of creative parts flying in close formation. I mean, the only thing I'd add is I, I do, I often think and look at the people who I work with, I think, gosh, they hire people who can do what you can't do. You know, actually having people who are different, you know, as well as people that you can travel to Birmingham with, but having people who are very, very different and will challenge. And then creating a culture, you know, always, like when we sit down and we're in the beginning of a big shoot, trying to, you know, I think Julian Bellamy once said, you know, it, it, making television is about worry, it's about talking about the problem. So creating a culture where people can say, you know, I'm worried about this or I'm concerned about this and not feel stupid. Because at the end of the day, there is so much going on, you have to know that the runner feels empowered to come up and go, I'm really worried about this light standing in the corner, it could keel over, or I'm worried about that contributor seems very upset, you know. And um, so how do you sort of specifically create that environment so that that runner feels it's okay? I mean, I think, you know, you can both talk to that, but, you know, we all talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? And the other thing is just being prepared to say, I fucked up, <laughs> you know as one of the bosses, being able to create that culture that you're not afraid of saying. I mean, I always think when I'm interviewing someone, you ask them a question and they go, oh, sorry, I don't know the answer to that. I think well, I can work with this person. You know, the power of saying I don't know or I'm worried or I'm concerned is, you know, that's what factual programming is because you just don't control what's going to happen. Nick? Uh, well, we have a, a, a similar process, I suppose. But a, tell lot me of about us the differences. Well, I, I mean, one thing. Okay, so for the sake of saying something different, one thing that we do that um, I, I, I'm pleased we do is that um, I was reading this. You know that great big fat Steve Jobs white autobiography book that came out. I was reading that, and uh, there's a bit in there that really struck me. I'm not comparing us to Apple, please. But um, <laughs> where where uh, Johnny Ive was talking about how Steve Jobs liked to come to the kind of R&D bit of the company every day, actually, and, and he could see all the product. He could see the pipeline. He could see the next few years of products. He could hold the models of them and touch them and all this kind of stuff. I was really struck by that because, you know, our ideas tend to sort of go around in our heads and come out in meetings, and they, we tend to store them on computers, and we have great big lists of things and that kind of stuff, and that's how we'd always done things before. And there was something to be said for that lo-fi thing. So what... so. What we did is we built a big glass room in the office 
that we pompously call the greenhouse. Uh, and it's, uh, one wall is brick, the other walls are all glass, and we can write on all the walls. And um, you can go in there, and, we, and it's only allowed to be used for development. It's the biggest room in the office. It can't be used for anything else at all. And our director of development gets extremely upset if anybody goes in there for a business conversation. <laughs> and, um, and you can see, on one wall, you can see our entire development slate. It's all written up there, you know, from early thoughts right through to things that are on the brink of happening. And you, you, what you want to do is get the idea is going from left to right is what we try and do. But, but I like being able to see the slate because a lot of things become very obvious uh, at once. You can see if there aren't enough of these or, um, or, or the balance of the broadcasters isn't right or it means you don't have to kind of look up everything all the time and have lots of bits of paper and everything. So we sit in there and we talk about, talk about things. And that's where we do all, all our, apart from when we go off site, that's where we do our regular uh, development meetings. I find it hard to separate development and pitching. Yeah. So, I, 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 and I sometimes wonder, actually, I'd love to play the game of, right, stop now, you can't come up with any new ideas, how long could you keep the business running on the ideas you've already come up with to this point? Because actually, I think you could keep it running for quite a long time. Mm. <laughs> you know, you've already got the ideas, and I suppose that's one of the things that we do. If we haven't, I mean, you know, it, is, it does come from Baby Borrowers was pitched to everybody, and we kept pitching it, and when Julian, and it wasn't actually Baby Borrows at the time, it was a, an idea called Children for Hire, and Julian said to me, why do you keep pitching this fucking idea, Rich? I said, because it's a good idea, you know. <laughs> he said, well, it would be good if you did this with it, you know. And, you know, that then, you know, and, and, and you know, people know, I've mentioned it before, Bake Off, we had for five ideas, and we just believed in it. It was simple, it was straightforward, we never stopped pitching it. So that was Richard McCarrow. For more on the Indie Summit, visit broadcastnow.co.uk. Previews time now. Back with me to chew over a couple of BBC Three shows are Chris Curtis and Stephen D. Wright. First up, Chasing Dad, A Lifelong Addiction, an intimate documentary from new filmmaker Philip Wood about his father's struggle with heroin. The film is made by Rare Day with Inside Carriages director Jane Triaz, executive producing. Here, Philip's dad claims he's off the drugs. How I haven't caved in completely is an absolute amazement to me. It really is. You know, I mean, it was hard enough getting off the goddamn shit, but staying off is quite another thing. Quite another thing. I, I wouldn't go so far as I'm dependent on drink. I mean, I don't go out and do silly things if I haven't got it, and, but I notice it does make me feel airless and miserable if I haven't got it. But that's where the addiction starts, because then you become dependent on it. It's not good, Dad. It isn't good, son. I know it isn't good. But that's what I'm saying. It's always I need some sort of chemical to keep my head in place. But these are demons that you need to exercise out of. Yeah. Because it's only going to end one way. Yeah. A six for under. Guys, this is pretty powerful stuff, no? Very powerful. I mean, and even more so because it's so simple. Probably the simplest documentary I've seen for a long time. You know, a boy with his camera talking behind the camera to his dad that's essentially it but it's incredibly compelling because the, the 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 reality of it the actual being in the room with this with this guy and and the grim the grim sort of you know this this is what life is like when your dad is a heroin addict uh, and the dad is incredibly charismatic i mean he's not he's not a miserable person he's not a a bad person. I think this is what hits you even harder. Eloquent as well. It, at, incredibly at eloquent, and and you see you see him sort of looking like he's on the brink of death, and yet he closes his eye and then suddenly carries on with the conversation. 
and you just think this is i mean it's a gift to a documentary maker while still being an unbelievably powerful story so very affecting uh great commission for 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 bbc3 i mean if they're doing stuff like this this is this you know this is pure documentary this really is this is the sort of thing you watch and it changes your life you know you 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 remember what it was like you, you know it will stay with me it's it's a very powerful incredible Chris, do you agree? Yeah, I like I like the the, the scale, or rather the lack of scale of it. It's, it's very a, claustrophobic. It's, it's at a times. Por- well, a lot of it's shot inside this yeah. guy's um, sort of masonette or wherever. It is. It's, it's a portrait of a very very mm. troubled man, and, and and in it because he's talking to his son as well. He, he wants to do the right thing for his son, so he wants to tell the truth. Mm. But he can't help but lying. He can't. He, he, so, and he says at one point, and he acknowledges how how, how lying has just become his default. Yeah mechanism and and the I mean, the you, filmmaker says I don't know if you're telling me the truth or not half the time and the viewers don't know as no. well but it's pretty obvious that he is uh, using heroin during I mean, the what it makes this. you realise is what it would be like to have one of your family members or a, or a neighbour or whatever become a heroin addict you you get mm. the unvarnished truth of what the, what it's like to deal with so you get the lies and the charm yeah. and, and you see the father you see the quickness of his brain where he goes to the lie straight away. I mean, he's lying when he doesn't, you know, the, the yeah. great sequence where the son says, look, are you lying? And he says, well, I'll tell you if I'm lying at the end of every sentence or whatever. And so we have this, uh, were you lying then? No. Uh, were you? Well, actually I was. And it's, and it's, and it's, it's kind of bitter humour. Yeah. Because, it, you know, this isn't done, this is, this is a documentary done with love, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a hard bitten love that's been through the, the ringer. And, you know what you said about claustrophobic. It, it, it that is that guy is in a prison of his own mind or whatever, or his mm, own mm-hmm. with the drug and everything else. And and you see sort of society trying to help, but then he kind of falls at that hurdle, and and it makes you realise this is what it's like. That's what so that's what I mean when I say pure documentary. It absolutely. I now know what it must be like to have a dad with heroin or or, or a close relative who's a heroin addict. I know you know one of my friends years ago was a heroin addict, but you know not anymore. This is what it's like to be with somebody who's using drugs all for, the time. For 20, 30 years he'd been using. It's ca- the chaos of his life. So the guy, this, the, the um, Philip the filmmaker, um, is there around at his house shooting him and talking to him, interviewing him. And of course, because he's spending time with him, his sort of associates and people just, just yeah, rock up. I know. And, the, and the, it's quite interesting. He has a relationship with this woman, Maria, and that's quite interesting to, to get a little insight yeah. into that one of the few good things yeah. and solid things in... in, in Who in, herself in, is quite articulate. Oh, and yeah, God. Yeah. I mean, you know, normally you see this kind of thing on, on, a, on a drama, you know, it's shameless or something like that. You know, it's all council houses and heroin addiction. And, uh, but this is, this is the real stuff. Mm. This shows you the sort of grim, uh, petty life the people that drift in and out, the bits of stealing, the bits of, of, of subterfuge, as well as the yeah. love. I mean, that's the thing. The, you know, these are not nasty people. These are these are decent people who... And, you, you know, the, the thing that's horrific about this documentary is the spectre of death. You know, he's, you know, at some point you can see the Grim Reaper sitting in the room waiting. And it's like that camera catches everything. Um, that's why it's so powerful. It's such mm. a brilliant, brilliant documentary. Yeah, so here's a, here's a question I wanted to ask is... Is this stuff, this this really brilliant television, cutting through for BBC Three now that it's online only? Well, there, that's the hard part. I mean, so watching this made me think: if BBC Three is doing stuff as good as this, then you know, then what have we got to worry about? Whether or not it's actually getting to the viewers is another question. But certainly, quality-wise, this couldn't have been better. You know, this is if this is BBC Three's online strategy, 
and this kind of level of quality, then it's fantastic. So I'm not worried in that sense at all. Whether or not people are watching it, then there's the classic mm. argument. I'm of, worried about that. I mean, BBC know, Three. Look, this could be shown on BBC One late night. So, well, I th- I, I'm sure it will. They be, should play yeah. this on BBC One at, you know, at nine, nine o'clock. To be yeah. honest, if they really, yeah. you know, if, if, if they're backing this this distinctive program making, yeah. they, they should they should be absolutely. Shown this at I mean, nine or o'clock. Channel Four. You know, I mean, it's, it's it's such a good documentary, but whether it's being buried on BBC Three. That's a that's a much bigger question. Okay, maybe maybe a thought for another day. Uh, Chasing Dad, a lifelong addiction, will be made available on BBC Three on Sunday, the tenth of April, from six pm. Uh, a slight change in tone for our second preview: Objective Productions comedy Witless. The series stars Kerry Howard and Zoe Boyle as two female flatmates who enter witness protection after seeing a gangland shooting. In this clip, our protagonists Leanne and Rona are given some bad news by a detective. Your names were involuntarily missed and unredacted. By which you mean? Your names were inadvertently passed on to the defence's legal team. The good news is that at least until this goes to trial, you'll both be granted protective witness status. Let me assure you... Wait, you're saying we need to go into witness protection? (gasps) You'll be issued with new identities and the requisite documents to accompany them. I want to talk to your boss. No, in fact, MP. Get my MP on the phone. Can I just say you've come to the right person for this? I've got a BTEC in performance art, so I know all about creating character. There really is nothing you would call acting involved. One starts with the shoes. Through the shoes, one finds the walk. <laughs> you like that, Steve? It's just Have you got a BTEC in performance art? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I started watching this thinking, oh, God, and then it was like, actually, this is really funny. Mm. I and thought the just, first scene was great. Well, no, it's because I'm such an old misery, of course, you know, but... Uh, it was really, really original. Really original. I hadn't seen something like this before. The gangland culture of these kind of, you know, youths in hoodies was incredible. Very funny. And just that whole kind of Swindon versus Bristol. <laughs> yes. You know, the, 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 you know, the Badlands and whatever. Yeah. And um, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was really, really funny. And uh, I could see this being a big hit. Pacey, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's Kerry Howard, is it? The, yes, uh, Kerry so Howard, yeah. Ki- From him and her. Yeah. So she is... It's sort of a, it, is it a vehicle for her? That's probably not being a bit unfair to the other um, the other actress and and the conceit. But it it's sort of hers to she's the silly the sillier yeah. of the two characters but, you know, with the funny voices. It will grow. I mean, that's the thing. You know, the other characters. I, I particularly like the teenage hitmen. You know, <laughs> who you know tonally are really off the scale, but. Wow, those characters are fantastic. He looks about 12. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, killing old grannies and stuff. It's it's, 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 it's definitely got a dark it's undertone. It's got a really hardcore edge. I was surprised by it. actually how dark you... Uh, how dark, yeah. anyway, and, and maybe I was being a bit too overthinking, but I was kind of... It wasn't obvious to me why they had to kill the granny. I mean... But we do Do we know that they killed her? Well, that's the thing. Uh, I mean, I, yeah. Stephen just said she was a granny I, killer. I said killing grannies. I didn't say... You know, well, no, I'm not... <laughs> We've spoiled it for everyone. No, we haven't. There's not. It's not really a. It's not really a narrative-driven thing. It's a. It's a. It's character. Oh, it's, look, it was. It was really good. It was really distinctive. I, yeah, as Stephen said, I love the. Um, you know, she said, "Oh, you'll love a night out in Swindon." It's like Gloucester, but not as stuck up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> lots of good lines. Yeah. They went to the strip cab next to Robert Dias. I'm giving it all away, yeah. but but there were lo- <laughs> it, it's lots of sort of humour that undercuts. They're sort of pastiching a lot of things. Oh, yeah. and- but it just but it was so re- refreshing that it's not to be set in London or Manchester. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, to, you know, to have that culture in Bristol. And, and, you know, it's completely real. Bristol has a really hardcore gang yep. problem. You know, um, it was just, it just felt so kind of fresh. 
And that's all you want on telly. You know, you see these people who aren't overexposed. The actors all look new. Yeah. And and it's and it's a it's a kind of clever, radical sort of uh, premise. You know, it's like and it's funny, and it gets funnier. It's and that's it's amazing. I loved it. You're going to carry on watching it then? God, yeah, yeah. Just to see you, what Chris, happens you next. Stick with it? Yeah, I was impressed. I mean, look, the only issue for me that I've got is, as my wife said the other day, she saw a trailer for something on BBC Three, and she said, "Oh, that looks really good. Shame we won't see it." By which, by which she meant, well, when we watch telly, we, we sit down and we watch telly based on a, a you know, still probably ba- you know, based yeah. on a Sky Plus box yeah, yeah, yeah. and the Lilia schedule and, and, and the BBC Three stuff is, is sort of there in the ether. But, we, you know, mm. I'm not on, I don't know if they're distributing it via Snapchat. It sounds like the kind of thing they should do. But, I, you know, I'm not doing that. So, so I'm, 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 Snapchat, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. worried well you would be, Stephen. <laughs> I don't want to hear uh, about your, your, your Snapchat. <laughs> I'll Snapchat anyone if they want. Um, <laughs> but, no, I mean, it's like that. I, you know, I watch my BBC Three stuff via iPlayer, mm-hmm. you know, via the Sky uh, Plus kind of recommendations mm-hmm. or whatever. So you're watching it on TV. So I'm watching it on TV. Well, I've I've, d- I've done the odd thing online, the odd thing. So it does. I mean, I mean, exactly the same. Will people see it? And or in six months' time, will it be then shown on BBC One at eleven forty-five on a Monday night? It won't. Look, so yeah. it have to be repeated a yeah, week so, after it's so gone Cuckoo, on online. For example, uh, you know, I loved Cuckoo mm-hmm. and and have watched it. This series which just finished, but I've watched it on the Sky Plus box, not. You know, online. So not. you've watched it via BBC One. So I watched yeah. it via BBC One. Yeah, exactly. the so, BBC you One know, so it's sort of yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's a it's a horrible thing to do. The programmes are brilliant, but the sort of for us old folk, you know, we don't watch TV the shows on our mobile phones. Working really, really, really hard. We've we've reviewed two BBC Three shows this week, which I yeah. think was a clever Jake Cantor tactic to get us talking. Jake's about. young. Jake's with down with the kids. I was trying but, to get us talking about BBC Three. We got we watched these two shows. We both loved them. Yeah, I think all three shows. of us really, uh, really love them, and I think that that's a great side it's, it's massively reassuring they've just got to keep working to make sure that old fogies like us still yeah. still find these well, things uh, as, uh, as BBC3 controller Damien Kavanagh says in broadcast this week it's a marathon not a sprint so plenty of time mm-hmm. Witless will be available on BBC3 later this month and we are done for another edition of Talking TV thanks to my guests Chris Curtis and Stephen D. Wright uh, please join us again in a couple of weeks but until then I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was Matt Hill goodbye You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 